Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon and please join me in welcoming our television and webcast viewers to today's program. My name is Jennifer Sloan, I'm President of the Canadian Club of Toronto and we thank our viewing audience for being with us today. Today marks the conclusion of the 118th season of the Canadian Club of Toronto. And knowing that our guest panel will be discussing the future of our country, I thought it would be appropriate to tell you a bit about the history of the club. It was near the end of the 19th century that a group of men came together to form the Canadian Club. The idea was to invite important people to address an audience over a meal, first dinner, then lunch, and in doing so, build community, encourage discussion on the issues of the day, and help define and project the image and potential of a new country, just a generation old to itself. While the club has changed in many ways, it's notable, for example, that I'm not a man, and through our media partnerships and social media properties, our events now reach far more than those in this room. In many ways, our aim is much the same, to delve into issues that matter in a meaningful way, to allow people to hear from and be inspired by leading figures, and above all, to project the image and potential of our now very different country as we make our way in the 21st century. It's also my last day as president of the club. And I mention our history as a way to say what a privilege it's been to steward this mission and to play but a small role in helping to provoke a discussion on the future of this city and our country. It's a pleasure to have our incoming present, president, Danny Asaf, and many of the club's board members, past and present, with us today. And it is with great appreciation and gratitude that I ask each of them to please rise to be recognized. Board members. Thank you so much for all that you do. And on behalf of the club, I would like to thank our audience for another great year. We'll soon start posting details on our upcoming season at CanadianClub.org. And in the meantime, we welcome any of your ideas and suggestions as we plan the year ahead. You can also join our conversation via Twitter and Instagram by following us at CDN. C-L-U-B-T-O, or by using that hashtag. Now, the club will not, would not have had all those tr years of uh, terrific history without the invaluable support of our sponsors. On that note, I want to express special thanks to today's event sponsor, Labatt Breweries of Canada, and reception sponsor, Carpenters Union. Thank you for your generous support. I'd also like to thank Bell Canada for sponsoring a group of Civic Action Diversity Fellows who are with us today.
And now, ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, I'm pleased to introduce today's topic and the distinguished panel that will address it. On Monday, October 19th, voters will head to the polls in the 42nd federal election in Canadian history. This election is already shaping up to be one of the most intriguing in recent memory. Election polls are in high gear. Federal candidates are nearing the starting line. Federal leaders are making uh, cross-Canada trips to rally supporters. Some familiar faces are saying goodbye to Parliament Hill, while others hope to reprise previous roles. Who better to wax eloquent on the possible outcomes of the election campaigns than three of the most in-the-know political outsiders in the land? They are regularly featured on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's popular news program, The National. The insiders, Kathleen Monk, David Hurley, and Jamie Watt, are here to share their inside knowledge with us today. Allow me, please, to introduce them briefly. Kathleen Monk is a highly sought-after political and public affairs commentator and Ottawa-based consultant. She has been named one of the most 100 influential people in government and politics by the Hill Times. David Hurley is a principal partner with the Gandalf Group. For almost two decades, he has been considered a leader in public opinion research, strategy, and communications. He currently advises private sector clients on brand image and reputation management. Jamie Watt is the executive chairman of Navigator Limited and a principal of Insight Canada. He specializes in complex public strategy issues, serving both domestic and international clients in the corporate, professional services, not-for-profit, and government sectors. He is a trusted advisor to business leaders as well as political party leaders. Moderating our discussion today will be the distinguished Don Newman. Before his retirement from his late afternoon slot on CBC, Don ruled the airways when it came to political broadcasts. If the issue was not front and center on Don's show, it really wasn't an issue. While our panelists make their way to the stage, I want to invite our live audience to join the conversation by filling out the question cards on each of your tables. One of our volunteers will come around to collect them during the program. And now, without further delay, Don Insiders, the Canadian Club of Toronto's podium, Canada's podium of record, is yours. Well, thank you, Jennifer, and uh, good afternoon, everybody. It's uh, nice to see such a big turnout here today. And um, I think we're going to learn something today. I don't know what that is yet, but I am almost certain that we'll learn something from uh, maybe all three of them or maybe just one of them. But one thing we already know, <laughs> one thing we already know is that Kathleen is the new Democrat because she is grinning from ear to ear. <laughs> and the others are somber and distinguished. Uh, but let me, let me start with you, Kathleen, because... And some are more somber than others, actually, when you think about yeah, but it. he's distinguished, which means old. 
But when you're distinguished, you're not meant to say I'm old. (laughs) Uh, But it's true. Um, I think it was John Diefenbaker who said that dogs know what polls are for, but the fact is that everybody follows polls, and the latest polls, Kathleen, show that the NDP is suddenly in front in the polls. The Conservatives are stuck about where they've been in second place, and the Liberals, David, are now all the way down in third place and uh, falling about uh, 10 points behind or more than the NDP. So Kathleen, is the NDP rise in the polls mainly a halo effect from the surprising Alberta election or is the NDP rise in the polls real? Well, a couple things. Um, thanks so, so much for the invitation to be here. Uh, we were here a couple of years ago um, on the same table, in fact. <laughs> um, and it's always great to be back uh, in Toronto. Uh, it's true um, we're smiling, but uh, I am smiling and people in the Democrat Party are smiling. But I'll tell you, you know, if you rewind back to previous elections, 06, uh, 04, 08, um, just to walk through the history of new Democratic polling, We used to go traditionally into election campaigns fighting for party status. We were often going into campaigns between 8 and 13 percent, struggling to maintain that party status and gain the seats uh, that we needed to have that recognition in Parliament. Um, But something changed, and I would argue that this, the notion of it, it is now a three-way is false, um, and that in fact, um, when that moment, when that when that change, the three-way race change, was actually in April of 2011, uh, when at, at that point, what was once our ceiling of polling, which is around 20%, uh, became the New Democratic floor. And that is significant. So what I'm trying to say is what we used to be at our highest point at 20 points is now we haven't dropped below that um, since obtaining official opposition status in the 2011 election. Um, I do think that there are some similarities between Alberta and uh, what's happening federally. I think in Alberta we saw a desire for change. I think we know that there's a desire for change at the federal level. I think we also saw in Alberta, which was only a caucus of four, uh, four MLAs, they were an outperforming caucus of four. They punched above their weight and did excellent work. Um, We also saw principled leadership from Rachel Notley, and I would argue the same kind of principled leadership we see from Tom Mulcair. Um, The policies that both the provincial Alberta party and the federal um, and New Democratic party are putting forward are not only good for the economy, they're good for families, and they're resonating. Um, so uh, I think, uh, I mean, we'll, well, obviously the discussion will last um, uh, many more minutes, and we can get into some of the details of why I think uh, those policies are resonating with Canadians, but I think, um, I think that there's a good chance that um, Mr. Mulcair will be able to maintain his momentum over the next 120-odd days that we have left before E-Day. So David Hurley... Uh What's gone wrong for the Liberals? Because the Liberals for two years were leading the polls, and now the closer you get to the election, the lower you go. So what I don't know. Kathleen convinced me. I quit. Point month. Well, we're a little late, folks. That'll be it. <laughs> Come on over. <laughs> I can sign you up right now. It's dark over there. Um, What's happened? Well, uh, I, I think 
um, that uh, the Liberal Party went through a year where it didn't have a great year. Um, and I think you saw some erosion of Liberal support steadily over the course of the last year gravitating to the NDP. Uh, people give various theories about that. Some people say C51 is costing the party uh, significantly among uh, higher educated uh, groups of people, uh, and maybe in some ethnic communities uh, C51 is a big issue. Um, the party uh, kind of got whipsawed around on the terrorism issue generally, um, and I think was probably um, uh, left in a weakened position by Mr. Harper's skillful playing of the terrorism issue for a while. So there was a, a, a gradual incremental shift of voters from the Liberals to the NDP that left the Liberals with a, still with a lead, but a smaller lead, until the Alberta election happened. I don't think there's any way to understate the seismic impact of the Alberta election. Um, I've, in my polling, seen the NDP up 8 to 10 points in every jurisdiction in the country. Um, and whether it's at the federal or provincial level. Uh, and uh, so there's been a tremendous brand credibility boost. I think behind that, what's really driving that is that there is a massive desire for change on the part of most Canadians. Um, and um, people don't want to be frustrated. Those people that want change don't want to be frustrated in the way that they have been in 2011 and 2008. Um, and so they are really looking first and foremost, for who's the pe who are the people that can beat Harper? Um, and who are the people that can do that job? And I think for a long time it looked like it was the Liberal Party that could do that job for people, and most people were quite content with that. Um, and on the other hand, when the after I said we had a relatively weak year, and then the Alberta election happened, and people said, my God, if they can beat the Conservatives in Alberta, maybe they're the people that can beat them everywhere. So that's given them a tremendous brand boost. What I think is the silver lining for the Liberal Party, and what I think would be the cautionary note for the NDP, would be that I think it really is um, uh, puts sets them up again for an audition. Um, to uh, be the government in waiting rather than cementing a position as a government in waiting. Um, Mr. Mulcair is very poorly known in the country. I just a few months ago was conducting some focus groups in Mississauga where more people in the group knew who I was than knew who he was. Um, and you could put up pictures of him and Harper and people would say, who's the guy with Harper? So he has not in any respect, this, the NDP surge is not a consequence of a considered assessment of the federal NDP and Tom Mulcair and a decision that they're the right way to go. It is a renewed interest and attention on them as a result of what's happened in Alberta. Whether that is sustainable over time is what we'll see. So, Jamie, the, the Conservatives wanted the NDP to be more competitive, but they didn't want them to be this competitive. And I'm wondering now, when you watch uh, as the anti-Harper vote kind of moved from the Liberals to the NDP, but the Conservative vote stays about where it is, is there any way the Conservatives can actually win this election? Well, a couple, well, a couple of things. I don't want to repeat what my colleagues have said. I also don't want to talk about three ways. My mother and my daughter are here. So. <laughs> um, but that is a very interesting question. I think, that, I think David made a very crucial point, and that is that there's a massive desire for change. And that desire for change was being restrained by lack of confidence in an alternative. So for a while they thought Mr. Trudeau would provide that change. Then the issue matrix moved, and when we had people chopping people's heads off halfway around the world or people shooting up the Hall of Honor or 
50 or 60, 70 dollar oil, whatever. People say, I may not be crazy about the guy that's there, but he knows how to be the prime minister, so I'll stick with him. Then we had Alberta, and all of a sudden, Mulcair becomes the guy who, after singing in a bar for 20 years, is an overnight success story. And if you want evidence of that, just go to cbc.ca after you leave here today, and you will see the most unbelievably flattering picture of Tom Mulcair I have ever seen. He looks fantastic. He's, his eyes are cast upward. He's inspiring, aspiring. He's hopeful. He's prime ministerial. And if you don't think photo editors rule the world, that will tell you. They do. <laughs> and it's not a picture. I mean, six months ago, the picture of Tom Mulcair that you would have seen would have been hectoring the prime minister like this, right? So something out there has changed. And the question is, Don, is this a temporary change? Is, as someone said uh, in the, just before lunch today, has he peaked too early? Is this a peak or is this a reset? And anyone who tells you that they know is uh, full of rubbish because yeah. none of us know. But certainly any of us who paid attention into what happened in Alberta say there is, not only is there a, a massive desire for change, change is afoot. And those are different things. Both are at work and both are, are not good news for a gov government, regardless of partisan stripe, that has been in office for 10 years. And do you think now, Jamie, staying with you for a minute, uh, the conservative ads that we've seen so far mainly aimed at Justin Trudeau, do you think now the conservatives are going to have to shift their focus or do you think that um, they will wait and see whether or not this is kind of a flash in the pan for the NDP? So conservatives are always trying, in, in, not always, but typically conservatives are always are trying to buck up the New Democrats, you know, help them, cause trouble for the liberals, make it easier for them, whatever. And the problem with that is that it's a little bit like, you know, the chemistry set that you get for a kid and you make them uh, do the experiment, you blow up the whole garage, right? And the next thing you know, they, they're like a mix my metaphors, but they're like a runaway train. How do you stop it? And, and, and the problem that conservatives have is that they are they, they have much less elasticity in their ability to be negative than, than their opponents, because they're seen as mean-spirited to start with. And that's certainly a problem the federal conservative party has. They're seen to be mean-spirited. So now we have to go, and this guy who all of a sudden is on the upswing, somehow they got to figure out how to go attack him. When they're attacking and they're actually nobody's second choice themselves, they're, in a, they're going to be very rapidly in a strategic box. David, how does the Liberal Party regain the traction that it, it did? It seemed to have it just floated along. I'm not sure it was even traction, but it was just kind of floating along on top of everything. And now, as we come down to you know the final innings of the game, what can the Liberal Party do to reverse it? Well, first of all, I would, I would say to your question to Jamie that I suspect that the Conservatives will keep their guns aimed at the Liberal Party and not shift them to the NDP, at least not for a while, um, because uh, the uh, best chance for the Conservatives now to grow their vote is not to take votes from the NDP. Those people are change voters that are there. They were with the Liberal Party and they were change voters and now they're with the NDP and they're change voters. But there are, within the liberal vote that's still, that is there, that 25 percent, 26 percent liberal vote uh, right now, there's about 8 to 10 points that voted for Harper in the last election mm -hmm. that gave him his majority, mm -hmm. right? So his best chance is to peel those voters off from the liberal party by making it look like Mulcair 
is a threat to win the election. And those people showed last time that given a choice between Harper and the NDP, they'd rather have Harper. So that's where his growth potential comes from, from us, not from, uh, not from the NDP. What do we have to do? When Justin Trudeau was elected leader, Canadians, especially those, these change voters, were excited about the showdown between Justin Trudeau and Stephen Harper. That was the head-to-head -head fight they wanted. That was the storyline they wanted to see. They weren't even interested in Tom Mulcair and the NDP because that just muddied up that storyline. Um, and that is what the Liberal Party needs to get back to. It needs Justin Trudeau to be the most exciting thing um, in Canadian politics, as he was. It needs him to get back uh, to that style of leadership that he was demonstrating at the time. And it needs to put... It needs to put issues at the, on the table that demonstrate to those change voters uh, that, uh, that the party sees the country the same way they do, sees this current government the same way they do, and empathizes with their desire for change. So it's a, it's a combination of being the, re, the more exciting change alternative and being the more authentic change alternative. And Kathleen, since uh, your vote now or your support in the polls is coming from the Liberals, uh, do you continue to attack Trudeau, or do you switch to Harper, or how do you manage that uh, problem? With all respect, I disagree with your premise. Um, in fact, unlike um, the Conservatives who do need to peel off uh, voters from Liberals, but the NDP takes equally from Conservatives and from Liberals. Um, and our focus has largely been on Harper. In fact, every party had, you know, several months ago, uh, plan out their research strategy, their ad strategy, and a lot of this was baked in. So a week ago Monday, you would have seen every party released an ad, right? And everyone's like, oh, isn't that interesting? All the all the ads came out at the same time. I mean, um, uh, didn't they think that maybe they should be targeting Mulcair as opposed to Trudeau? Uh, but it's because these ads and the research that formed the messages in these ads was done months and months and months ago. Um, similarly, the NDP team knew that Mulcair wasn't known by the country, knew that we had okay brand recognition, but in order to win in 2015, we had to ensure that Canadians knew what the NDP policies were and let them get comfortable with those policies. That's why almost a year ago, Mulcair started talking about $15 daycare, raising the minimum wage, a cut to small business taxes. Um, so people, that, that formed the discussion and we were essentially preconditioning the electorate um, to be comfortable with the NDP positions. It's true what my colleague David says, he's not well known, but the brand has strong recognition across the country and particularly in some of those prairie provinces where the Liberals aren't in contention. Like, we're, many of the fights the New Democrats are in are blue-orange fights. We saw that in Alberta, particularly. But you know, Don, when, when, when this change thing takes place, um, it, it, you can't really analyze it on a rational basis anymore. Mm -hmm. And well, apologies to people watching on television, but for people in this room, we just have to look back to the Rob Ford election when a majority, not a plurality, a majority of women, a majority of capital L liberals, and a majority of gay men voted for Rob Ford. Now, there is no earthly, rational reason <laughs> for that to have taken place, right? And they didn't care because they just wanted David Miller and his legs out. And the more you told him he was going to be an embarrassment or he was going to be a bull in a china, they said, good. 
That's what they wanted. They didn't care if some China got broken a lot. Now, they didn't know about <laughs> That's a different story. But, and, and the point is, I did, you know, our firm, uh, my colleague uh, Chris Kelly, who's here, led the research that we did in the middle of the Alberta election. And they were so done with the PC party and their self, in their view, their self-centered deal, dealing and whatever, fair or not, they were just done. And no rational argument could be made to them. And so if that takes place, then we have a very different dynamic, which is very hard to predict. Uh, I want to go to the audience questions, um, uh, at least for a moment. Kathleen, uh, this questioner says, Notley and Mulcair disagree on pipelines. How does the federal NDP square that circle? So, um Notley agrees with Energy East, and as does Mr. Mulcair. Notley disagrees with Keystone, and I believe she's remained relatively silent on Northern Gateway. So I don't see um, the differentiation in their policies. But that said, the Premier of Alberta is going to be focused on making Alberta the most attractive place for investment in that province. She has, she recognizes the resources and the wealth that exists within that province and wants um, Alberta to continue to be an attractive place for that investment. Her focus is on jobs, on creating uh, long-term uh, family-supporting jobs and getting off the roller coaster. So she said very clearly in her throne speech that what she's looking to do is stop the roller coaster, stop the boom-bust cycle, and look at ways to create uh, more longer-term and diversified growth. David, I have a question for you from the audience. Will the controversies concerning Trudeau's open nominations and then the explanation Eve Adams, Bill Blair versus, uh, obviously, which were not as open as they might have been, I add editorial content, but uh, versus his treatment of Christine Innes, will this hurt liberal support? No. Um, no, it's a... Uh, as I think yeah, John Turner said to me once, these are issues that some of the mothers of some of the principals will care about. Um, <laughs> but, uh, not, so true. Not, not going to be something that's a voting issue on uh, on election day. And uh, to come uh, strongly to Mr. Trudeau's defense here, I don't think there's anything inconsistent with saying that there will be open nominations and also, uh, at the same time, the leader having a point of view about who ought to win that nomination. You take that away, and the leader has absolutely no influence over who is running uh, for them. Uh, you do have to put together a cabinet at the end of the day. Uh, you do need to draw certain strengths and experiences in. For the leader to, I think for him to have given up the power of appointment was a tremendously democratic gesture, not one I would have made. Um, and uh, But uh, the fact that he has then waded into some of those fights and said, I think that this distinguished person is somebody that I need on my team, I don't think violates the open uh, nomination principle at all. And Jamie, uh, this uh, question wants to know, what is the biggest mistake each of the party leaders can make between now and election day? Wow. Well, I think they each, I, maybe I can answer that in, in a slightly different way by saying, what do they each need to do? Right? And I think um, Mr. Mulcair has to um, do what Rachel Notley did, which was to, to convince voters, and she did very effectively, and we have research evidence of this, that he's not going to go on some crazy 
ideological wingnut mission if he's given the keys, right? That he's going to govern competently, he will govern from the middle, and that he will govern responsibly for all the constituency. Then he's got to convince people of that. So, that, that, so I guess the worst thing he can do is if he, you know, mm-hmm. says I'm going to nationalize the banks or you know some outdated NDP thing, that'd be a problem. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Trudeau, Mr. Trudeau has Are got. Are you guys for that? Still, really? <laughs> try, try, David. Try, try. <laughs> Mr. Trudeau has to convince um, Canadians that he understands that when he gets to the Langevin block and gets to the Prime Minister's office, he knows that there aren't training wheels in the cupboard mm-hmm. and that he can actually be competent to govern. And he's got a tricky plan to do that because as much as it's very nice that he's going to emphasize his team, and, of course, that's a contrast point to the guy that has no team, and we have a one-person mm-hmm. band, a lot of people think, so that's a good point. But at the other day, people want to know that their prime minister is in charge. And when they go to the G8 or G7, I guess that we What's call that? it now. The 3 a.m. call. The 3 a.m. call, you know, so forth and so on. So I think that's what he's got to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mr. Uh, Harper ha- has got to convince people that he's not out of ideas, out of gas, that after 10 years that he's learned how to do his job, and that he can be generous and he can see a large positive view of Canada and govern for all Canadians, not just for a narrow set of them, and overcome some of those things. So I think the worst thing they can do is each of them not do those three things right. that they crucially have to do. And I think the problem is is that we've got an electorate now more volatile than it's been in the past, and there are more voters. David is more the expert than I, but there are mo- more voters that will be up for, for grabs. If, if you look to Alberta, for example... Uh, Mr. Prentice only retained 3 in 10 of Premier Redford's voters. So that's a huge, a huge mobility in that voting, in that voting pool. Uh, particularly in an election where all three parties are competitive, the campaign I would put to you is going to matter, and it's really going to matter, maybe more than in other elections. But uh, we're seeing a lot of technological change in the way parties campaign, and we also know that uh, national campaigns uh, are good in, in, in the sense that people like to think it's one nation, but really the parties all focus on the areas where they're strong to get their vote out. So, David, what do you think we're going to see that's different in this campaign that we haven't seen before, either through the technology or through other something else? Uh, I think in technology terms, I think you're going to see political parties spend uh, significantly less of their advertising dollars on traditional media and significantly more of their money on digital uh, media and social media communications. Um, people talk about social media like the old days where it's free, but it's not free anymore. If you want to advertise on, you want to get a message out on Facebook, you're going to pay uh, just like you would pay to have something on television. So digital, the online world is not free, uh, uh, but it is uh, a highly targeted and in some cases very effective way to reach uh, to reach voters. You can, unlike other forms of mass advertising, you can target digital advertising by postal code, uh, so you can vary it uh, as much as you want and target it. So I think that's one of the technological changes that we'll see. There's been a lot of talk about whether or not the uh, media are going to follow the leaders' tours in mm-hmm. the same way, and we don't know yet what the take-up um, of media on the leaders' tours is going to be, which could cause some big changes. Um, uh, because I, the media really financed the leaders' tour, right? I mean, that's the big change you would see if they didn't Well, it will, it will be seat. interesting, and yeah. the financing of this campaign is going to be uh, especially interesting to watch, I think, because the mm-hmm. 
I'm expecting that the Conservatives will call a long writ period. Hmm. I'm expecting that the election, which wouldn't need to be called until uh, the end of the first week of September, is likely to be called in mid-August. Hmm. Um, and I believe that for two reasons, one of which is as soon as the writ is dropped, the third-party advertising that has just come hmm. on television needs to stop. Uh, and get off the air. But the second thing that not many people realize is the changes that the Conservatives brought into the election law prorates every additional day of the campaign, prorates the budget Mm. of the election campaign. So in 2005-2006, which went over Christmas and was exceptionally long, you had the same budget for that long period of time as you would have had for a 37-day rent. Now the budget's prorated. So if they call the election on October, on August 15th, that adds about $14 million to the party budgets. I only know of one party that has a spare $14 million sitting around uh, to spend. And so, they'll be the ones that can call the election. That's right. <laughs> Kathleen, you were in the uh, Alberta NDP war room and uh, working on that campaign. Did you learn things in that campaign, uh, particularly in new media and, and anything else that will be applied to the national campaign? Um, it was a very traditional war room. I think there were a lot of imported lessons from the 2011 campaign into that war room. There were some of the same cast of characters, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I would say about campaigns generally is that, um, uh, to use uh, my good colleague Jamie's um, branded, t- trademarked slogan, that campaigns do matter and what mm-hmm. happens on the ground matters. And why I point that out is not just because it's obvious, but what the, the chemistry of people we have running this time. So yes, everyone might say that uh, that magic 10-year number, Harper's time is up. It's not often that a government gets to last past that 10-year mark. Um, but at the same time, we haven't, except with two occasions, seen a leader of the official opposition beat a prime minister having not run a federal campaign himself ever. Like, let's remember, Mr. Mulcair is a very experienced leader and has run a number of times uh, provincially and obviously federally for the NDP in the province of Quebec, but hasn't run a federal campaign before. Similarly, history has never shown that the leader of a third party, uh, Mr. Trudeau currently, can leapfrog that official opposition status to take down a prime minister. So that's what the history book says. But in terms of um, this campaign, I think that David's, I agree with everything David said, there'll be some changes in terms of social media and digital targeting. Um, But I'm one of those people, and there's also going to be all these new gadgets that the campaigners and canvassers are going to use on your front doorstep. Instead of clipboards, they're going to use iPads to take down all your information. But I'm one of those people that thinks at some point the pendulum needs to swing back. Um, So yes, in the last few years, we've seen a massive push towards big data, data collection, a deep dive on some of the metrics. But I really believe it starts with narrative, authenticity, connection with voters. And I think that I I like to believe that Jack Layton had that in spades. I also like to think that Ms. Notley won uh, largely and picked up a lot of those progressive conservative voters that Jamie said dropped off um, from from Redford uh, because of her authenticity. So I think the pendulum's got to swing back a little bit off the big data and back onto narrative. You know, Don, we hear a lot about uh, the ground game. You have to have a good, it's great to have support, but you have to have a good ground game to get your, your vote out. Well, that's nonsense. The New Democrats did not have a strong ground game in Quebec in the last election and got 50-plus seats. Uh, For sure, in Alberta, the Conservatives had a better ground game than the New Democrats had. 
And the, the PCs are in third place now, as you know, and it's now premier Notley to you. So this idea that things are changing, right? And, and, and people are making decisions differently, and they're turning out differently. So there's a lot of lessons from the past that I think we have to really significantly reevaluate. And what, from the Conservatives' point of view, is going to be the election question? Well, experience for the road ahead, right? I think there's no question about it. And, uh, you know, in my mind, I see a But also portraying the road ahead as being uh, littered with ISIS and exactly. other people like that. I mean, I see, if I was making ads, I see that, uh, that prototypical uh, picture of the Elysee Palace and... Uh, Alone just standing there, you know, and the cars always drive up, and out gets uh, Chancellor Merkel, and he kisses her, and out gets Prime Minister Cameron, and he shakes his hand, and out gets uh, President Obama, and then, you know, who do you want from Canada, right? And I think that's obviously what they're going to try and uh, try and do. Whether it will work or not, I don't know. It's a different story. But that that is for sure the data will tell you, even people who do not like Stephen Harper, say he knows how to be the Prime Minister. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, other than calling for change, what is the NDP going to try and frame the question as? Well, they've got to change the question on um, what Harper wants it, which is, you know, I'm the mm -hmm. best to keep the stable economy and to fight off Putin. Um, I refuse to shake his hand. I'm a tough guy. Uh, to who's best for your family. So take it off the macro, bring it to the micro. Who's best to help your family. And New Democrats consistently poll high on those numbers, um, who they trust to kind of quote unquote have their back. Um, so uh, these policies that the New Democratic Party have has have been rolling out since last fall uh, speak to that. Um, and I think that when you compare the three leaders, and if there is that desire for change, and I've heard this anecdotally from both businessmen in Toronto and um, and people out west, when you look at these three male leaders, um, you ask yourself, who do you want to hire as prime minister? And that's essentially what we do. I mean, we are a Westminster system. We don't actually hire and don't actually get to vote for our prime minister. You're not actually going to do a job interview thing, are you? No, no, that's <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, when you go it's into the ballot box, commercial. who do you want there? And I think, I think that in some ways, and we can have a conversation about this later, but I think in some ways... The whole um, Tough Tom uh, branding has backfired on both the Liberals um, and the Conservatives because Canadians want a tough guy. They want someone who's going to stand up for them and for their family. And if they want change, which I feel there's a desire for change, they want somebody who's going to knock Harper out of Langevin block. And so they see uh, Mulcair as that individual. David, the Liberal question, other than time for a change? Well, there's two kinds of change that people are looking for. Uh, there's policy real change. change. <laughs> <laughs> there's real change. Real change. change. Yeah. Real change. <laughs> no, there's policy change that people are looking for. In that, there for most people, the economy isn't working terribly well right now. Uh, Mr. Harper gets a lot of credit for having steered the country through the 2008 crisis. A lot less credit for what he's done since in terms of creating growth and job opportunities, etc. Um, so there's policy change that's desired, and there's also stylistic change. 
that's desired and that people are very, very tired of the heavy-handed, overly partisan approach of the Harper government to almost all issues. And I think that the, uh, the question the Liberals are going to be asking people is, who really represents on both of those fronts the change you're looking for? Who really has a plan uh, for middle-class people and for working people that will improve their lives, an economic plan to do that? And second of all, who really represents change? And in a lot of respects, Tom Mulcair and Stephen Harper are from the same generation uh, of people. They are both very partisan people. Uh, they both appear to have a significant mean streak uh, to them. Uh, they're both badly overweight. Um, they, <laughs> in many respects, uh, in many respects, these people are more similar uh, than they are different. And so, Justin Trudeau is the physical embodiment of change relative to those two people. With good uh, hair. What? With good hair. <laughs> So between between stylistic change and policy change, the Liberal Party is uh, is the best option. Well, <laughs> it's always good to leave them laughing, and I'm afraid we have to leave them laughing because our time is up. But yeah. panel, thank you all very much. Very enlightening. And, thank, you. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, and good afternoon, and thank you for joining us. And uh, I'm Danny Asaf, uh, the president-elect of the Canadian Club, and it's my pleasure and honor today to thank our panelists. But before I do that, I wanted to take a moment, maybe my only moment, to publicly thank our outgoing president, uh, Jennifer Sloan, who has done an exceptional job and has really paved the way to what I see my job being much easier next year, building on the exceptional tradition of this platform and continuing to keep it extremely relevant and poignant in 2015 as well. And on that note, I want to thank you. And now I get my other honor, which is to thank the insiders. And regardless of whomever or whatever we may be tired of in terms of the politics of the upcoming very important election, we'll never get tired of listening to the wonderful and insightful views of our panelists. Each and every one of them has contributed something to our understanding, again, to the, the strength of this podium, with Kathleen giving us an insight into this new and exciting surge of what used to be the third-place party, the NDP, and as they take the, 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 the reins of government in, in Alberta and threaten to do that federally. And to David for explaining to us, among other things, the dynamics of political change and how that works through his deep experience with the Liberal Party and how that can play into our assessment of how we see this election unfolding. And to Jamie for explaining, among other things, the irrationality of that change and his experience with the Conservative Party and understanding that component of what may be afoot with the Canadian electorate. And of course, none of that, is, none of that would have been possible without the vibrant and the youthful insights <laughs> and experience of Don Newman, who has really been the maestro of today's event and brought out all those great insights and ideas for us to benefit from. And it's on that note, we all can look forward to an exciting election, the benefit of these ideas, and hopefully the best days ahead for our great country. Thank you.
Danny, thank you very much for that special shout out and I wish you all the best in your season next year. And I'd like to echo your thanks to our panel, Don, Jamie, Kathleen and David. Fantastic as always, wonderful, insightful, funny. Uh, very much appreciate you being with us today, our last event of the season. So before I adjourn today's meeting, let me say one last time, ladies and gentlemen, I refer you to the survey on your tables. The Canadian Club is always looking for ways to improve your experience with us. So if you would kindly take the time to leave your comments and thoughts, we'd very much appreciate it. We are particularly interested in knowing whether you liked our new shortened luncheon format this season. Again, the feedback is most appreciated. This concludes our program today, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We thank Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of Canadian club events. To learn more about our club, please visit us at www.canadianclub.org. Once again, thanks, you, thanks to all of you for joining us. Thanks for a fantastic season. We look forward to seeing you all back in September. Our season has ended and this meeting is adjourned. <laughs>